We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, this has just been a weird day. <laughs> it's just, we just had a false start behind the scenes that nobody, you know, I don't even need to talk about it. But Our first intro was awesome. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I'm doing the show with the boss, and here we are. <laughs> so Jesse was, was going to be here. I have no idea what's going on with him right now. We're still trying to find him right now, but Brian Driscoll is, is pinch hitting. <laughs> great to have you today this is our first time together I'm, I'm honored i had to beg sean can i please finally join the show but <laughs> yeah. we are here and i'm excited to be here i was trying to figure out what to do and, and you, 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 brian just basically like please please i'll do the show <laughs> i'll do I'll it ju- I'll jump in. Come on. <laughs> i had to have so, somebody go uh turn off jesse's electricity and all that so he couldn't be on the show tonight so i could be on it so maybe that's what it was because yeah. a couple of weeks ago i lost my power and <laughs> Yeah, we, we had a weird show yeah. that night. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot that we're going to get to. Checklist for success for Notre Dame is mm-hmm. uh, kind of the name of this show. And what we're going to do is go through some of the things that we think are most important on each side of the ball for Notre Dame to have a successful season. And, uh, you know, Brian can just rattle them off off the top <laughs> of his head. So it doesn't matter if, if just like six <laughs> minutes ago is when he found out. He was <laughs> So. <laughs> well, I've put a lot of thought into it. I just didn't know yeah. I was going to get a chance to talk about it in tonight's show. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely some things that I think got to hit right on both sides of the ball. I, look, Sean, for me, I think Notre Dame has a very talented roster. Are they at the point yet where, like last year with Georgia, where Georgia lost their best receiver, a stud tight end, and their best pass rusher and still won a title? Notre Dame can't go through that and still win a title. They have to have some things, I think, kind of, you know, go right. And, you know, that's kind of how I think about about this type of thing is what are the things that have to go right for this team to reach reach its full potential? Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there are some things on each side of the ball, and that's what we're going to go through today. Also, coming up a little bit later in this show, I've got an interview with former Notre Dame pitcher Chris Niesel. Chris was a pitcher for Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team, uh, you know, obviously celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. So uh, shared some memories with Chris, and he – was the starting pitcher in arguably the three biggest wins in Notre Dame history. You know, well, 
I would say in the last 60 years, but then, you know, this year's College World Series team ended up, uh, you know, having a little bit of a role of its own. But uh, he came up big in, in uh, three big wins, including the elimination game uh, at the College World Series. He also is the guy responsible for giving Jeff Samarja his nickname, Shark. So uh, I asked him about that, and uh, you'll hear about that, kind of the origin of uh, the nickname that Jeff Samarja got so uh we're looking forward to doing that welcome back robbie who um he told us yesterday that he hadn't watched live since the very first show until yesterday and now he's here two days in a row so he's on a roll right now good to have you back and he said he had been watching the uh you know the the archive videos but he hadn't been here live since then so glad to have you back robbie we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So again, the name of the show today is Checklist for Success. We're going to go through uh, some things on the defensive side of the ball and the offensive side of the ball uh, for Notre Dame to be successful in 2022. Let's let's just start with maybe what would be at the top of your list defensively, Brian. I have an idea of what it probably would be. You tell me, though, first. I think in order to reach your full potential as a program, what you're good at, you have to be really good at, right? So when you look at the defense, the strength that I perceive this team to have going into the season is going to be the defensive line. So to me, the first checklist is, your dudes have to play like dudes, right? And that's where a lot of your dudes are. You know, you need Isaiah Foskey to build on last year. You need Jason Adamiola to put it all together. You need Riley Mills to have that breakout this year. You know, Howard Cross to step into Kurt Heinisch, you know, depth to all that ties into the D-line place dominant. And, and that's really what it boils down to, to me. Cornerback, safety, line, we'll talk about all those things as well. But the, the foundation of this defense, as far as checking off the list, has to be you have to have a dominant group in the trenches and everything that goes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's a team that had 41 sacks last year and they return a high percentage of those sacks. You know, they don't miss, they don't, they don't lose many of those sacks from a year ago. Like Kurt Heinish and Myron Tongavaloa-Mosa each mm -hmm. had two. And those are like individually, those are the biggest loss, you know, from an individual total standpoint to a piece that those mm -hmm. guys had, you know, and I mean, uh, Obviously, you got Isaiah Foskey back, and everyone expects great things from him. And the Adam Lola's coming back, and and I guess my you know what's what's going to happen on that other side? Not mm -hmm. necessarily the Viper defensive inside, but that that big defensive end. You know, like what 
what exactly are we going to see out of that? You know, is, you know, Riley Mills inside, mm -hmm. outside, what exactly that's going to look like? I think that's maybe why one mm -hmm. of my bigger questions in terms yeah. of the defensive line coming into the season. Yeah. I mean, does Riley Mills have the breakout, right? It, yeah. Is it, it, it like we can look at, well, he was mostly inside, played one game last year as the big end, and he had two sacks against Virginia, you know? So is that a, you know, foreshadowing of what's to come? Not that he's going to have two sacks every game, but that he's going to play on the edge. Or was that just sort of a, a good game against a bad opponent that wasn't expecting to see him? Because Virginia's offensive line last year was bad. Uh, the outside of their center, which again is not going to stop a big end a whole lot. Yeah, uh, they they weren't very good. You know, I I've heard a lot of good things about him. By the end of the spring, he was playing very well. He's a two hundred ninety pound big end, and I would argue he's a little bit more explosive athletically than Myron was. And so I I think there's a chance for him to be a really good player, but he needs to be there, right? And you know, I think he needs to be that, but it can't just be him. And, and that's the big, especially the bigger guys you are, you need to have a good rotation. So even if Riley Mills breaks out, he's playing what, 50 snaps a game? What about, and that's a lot. You know, what about the other 30, 20 to 30 snaps a game? You know, is it Alan, Alexander Ahrensberger? Does Nana Osafa Mensa step up? You know, are they able to kind of get into some nickel packages where maybe J Justin Adamiel is sort of that end opposite of, of Isaiah Foskey, which I think we'll see a lot of this year where, where they get those two guys in the field together? You know, do against maybe some of the faster teams, North Carolina, uh, USC, do they maybe think about putting Justin as sort of the big end or Isaiah Foskey as the big end when you're playing yeah. a team that's going to throw the ball more to get more pass rushers on the field since they're not going to run at you? Almost like you're kind of daring them to run at you, right? And, and I think that's kind of how they look at it. So it's going to be interesting, but at the end of the day, the, the, the key there is Riley Mills having somewhat of a breakout season that cures a lot of those or answers a lot of those questions and can make this defense. It, he could be the difference to me between this being a really, really good defensive line, which it's been and a truly elite defensive line, which I think it's capable of being right. But they're going to have to have some things go, go their way. Well, cause like Mills, I think we were probably expecting more from him last year, still had a, mm -hmm. you know, a, a pretty good season, but this would be, you know, like you said, what he did last year was nowhere near what you would consider a breakout type season. And and that's, I, I think that's, again, like when you look at that side of the line, a big question. Are, 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 we, are we officially considering Jordan Botello a linebacker now? Do you, you know, Rover slash some kind of linebacker? Is that kind of how we're looking at it? You know, because like it, he was the first thing that I thought of when mm -hmm. you talked about, you know, bouncing you know, maybe Isaiah Foskey, like if you're going to flip-flop mm -hmm. him, even though you do have Adam Alola, obviously, mm -hmm. still. But, you know, could he kind of still be, you know, in, in the cards there, you know, maybe from time to time, do you think? I still like him best where you're talking about, Sean. I still like him best as a guy you just kind of come off the edge with your hair on fire. I, I mean, yeah. I still feel like that's where his skill set is, you know, can, can best be. I mean, look, it says a lot about him that he can play Rover and maybe play some inside linebacker if you need him to. It says a lot about his versatility, but go back to his high school film, Notre Dame, when when he has really flashed the most impressively is when he's coming off the edge. And and so, you know, does he does that mean maybe, you know, can he maybe battle Bo Bauer for that third round, that third down linebacker role, which is sort of a blitzer slash drop in the coverage of I mean, if he can play Rover, he can he can do that. Right. Right. And then you add that just a little bit more explosiveness, a little bit more of a net. The thing about Jordan Patejo, Sean, is. There's never been a doubt about his talent or his feel for the game. He's got a great feel for the game, and he's very talented. It's can you depend on him? Can you trust him to be there every day? 
And so far this offseason, he's been that. If that continues, he could be a guy that could be that that boy. Now, now you throw him on the field with Justin Adamiola, who was the second leading sacker for them last year. You know, and you put him with Justin Adam. I mean, think about this. If you're if you're against a you know third and nine, you've got Isaiah Foskey, Justin Adamiola, Jason Adamiola, and Joe, Jordan but the hell coming after you. That's a lot of pass rushing potential right there. Right. right. And so yeah, he he could be that interesting weapon, and especially early when teams maybe haven't seen some film on it. You know, maybe you throw so. that out at somebody that's not expecting to see it, and then it's like, oh wow, I wasn't prepared for that. And you know, maybe you can steal some some early big plays from him. That's exactly right. Before I go any farther, I forgot to mention off the top, be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, rate, follow, you know, all those fun things, comment. We, uh, you know, we've always uh, helps out the channel. Always great to hear from you as well with, you know, with your comments and stuff like that. So we do appreciate it. It helps us out quite a bit. Over 10,000 subscribers right now, Brian, as we head toward mm-hmm. the month of August. Got to be pretty excited. Yeah, that. <laughs> we were we were fired up about getting to 10,000 and now we're kind of creeping up on 10 and a half thousand. So we're, we're still continuing to grow, grow very, very quickly. Very That's excited fun. about it. All right. So what's next on your defensive checklist for success then? Defensive line, I, you know, I'm, I'm completely right there with you. What's next defensively for you? Well, Step one is your strength has to play like a strength, right? The second thing has to be the biggest question mark you have has to get answered, right? You, and that to me is corner. And it's not just someone's got to beat out Clarence. So I don't care what it looks like or who it is. It just the play opposite Cam Hart has to get better than what it was last year, especially in the big games. I mean, there's times that Clarence was a good football player last year. It's just when you played the better teams, you know, Cincinnati, uh, obviously Oklahoma State and if not for Graham Hurt, Mertz being a little in, pretty inaccurate against Wisconsin, there's a couple times he got beat deep in that game too. The quarterback just missed him. You know, he's got to really step up and play better football. And if not, somebody has to take that job from him, whether it's Tariq Bracey becoming a full-time outside guy uh, on first and second down, whether it's Ryan Barnes, whether it's Chance Tucker. I don't really – Jaden Mickey, Benjamin Morrison, I don't care who it is. Somebody has to step up and provide better cornerback play opposite Cam Hart. Because otherwise, Sean, yeah. when they play Ohio State, Clemson, and USC, they're just going to avoid Cam Hart and, and yeah. pick it on the other guy. And that's what Oklahoma State did. I mean, they torched Notre Dame, but how often did they throw the ball at Cam Hart? I can't think of one other than a couple hitch routes against offs coverage. So someone's going to have to step up and say, if you're going to avoid our dude over there, you're gonna we're going to make you pay for it. And that's, to me, the biggest check, the biggest question mark that they have on defense, and that's my number two checklist. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's got to get figured out. And I mean, they've got talent there with some of those guys you mentioned. Jaden Mickey was kind of the guy who, you know, really kind of stood out. I think, you know, people not named Cam Hart, Jaden Mickey with the secondary, but there mm-hmm. there's still some other guys out there, you know, whether it's Riley or Barnes, who you mentioned as well. You know, I think that there, there are going to be some opportunities and that's going to be, you know, I don't know. Who knows exactly how much of that specifically we'll get to see during fall training camp where, you know, we're going to get a lot of different availabilities. We're going to get two full practices, but that's, <laughs> that's the one that all eyes would be on. You know, if we could be mm-hmm. there and, and see full practices and, and, you know, those competitive one-on-ones and things like that every day, who's going to step up there at corner. Cause that's, that's an absolute must, you know, it, because once again, we have, we have a lot of confidence in the back end of the secondary with mm-hmm. Brandon Joseph coming in for Kyle Hamilton, but it's just, you're exactly right. All you've got to do is avoid the number one 
corner and go someplace else. And that's that's what they've got to get figured out. And for me, too, it's it's better if it's someone not named Tariq Bracey. Like, that's my thing. I actually think Tariq Bracey had played pretty good football last year. And, mm-hmm. and there was times he was outside. And I feel like if if you have to move him outside and he's the starter outside, I think that takes away a little bit from how good he was in the slot. I think where he was at his best last year was in the slot. And I feel like if somebody else can step out, step up outside, then you can kind of leave Tariq where he's really comfortable, which is when you're in your base defense, he can play outside. But when you're in your nickel and against Ohio State and Clemson and USC, arguably your three toughest opponents, you're going to be nickel a lot. You know, And those are the games that are going to determine what this season is. If you can leave Tariq inside and somebody else emerges outside, I think that's the key. So, yeah, uh, yes, Tariq could be an option, but I'd much rather be somebody else uh, at least somebody, at least a third guy really step up so that way you can feel comfortable with with putting Tariq inside and uh, at least in those big games. If they have to play him in some base downs against other teams, that's fine. But in those big games, if you can have Tariq inside and then somebody else step out, step up outside, that's where you get your best alignment. So it's not just about like one guy, but your whole your best unit is Cam Hart as a starter, Tariq bracing the slot, and then somebody else stepping up as a really good cover player on the outside. I agree. All right. So what's your third thing defensively then, Brian? Well, I think they have to become a more disciplined football team than they were last year. I think that's the big thing for me. And, you know, you you were making a big schematic change, a big philosophical change from a a defense that was built on precision and everybody's got to be right here. And, and, you, and you know, it's, it's fundamentally sound and and all those type of things, which allowed them to be a, a really good bend but don't break defense under Clark Lee. I mean, a great red zone defense, which allowed them to you know not be a great yards allowed defense. They would give up yards, but you couldn't score touchdowns on them. That was kind of the hallmark to me of the of the Clark Lee defense. And it, it's like it was the thought of if we make you run enough plays, our D line will go make a play to stop you. That that was the approach that Notre Dame took under Clark Lee to a more aggressive playmaking. Somebody go step up and make a play defense last year. And there was a lot of mistakes, right? You saw the miss, you know, the blown assignment against Florida State that resulted in an 80-plus yard touchdown. You had, you know, KJ Wallace going under a wheel route instead of over top of a wheel route, which results in a 60-something yard gain against Toledo. You saw a lot of missed tackles. You saw, you know, some bad gap fits and things like that. They cleaned it up a lot down the stretch. And I think the how poorly they were in the bowl game masked just how good Notre Dame played in the second half of the season on defense. I mean, they were they were really good after the North Carolina game. I mean, dominant defense. Yeah. And, and so you've got to get back to, to, you know, I think this defense is capable of being really good, but they have to be more disciplined than they were last year, which includes assignments. But also, I would kind of throw tackling in there, too. I mean, when you look at some of the athletic quarterbacks are going to play, Sean, this team has not been a good tackling team, in my opinion, since 2018. That was the last time I really felt like Notre Dame was a really good tackling team. And that really is weird. I mean, you're talking about two defensive coordinators, mm-hmm. you know, over that stretch. And just the fact that such a, you know, a basic fundamental yeah. part of playing defense, it's it, right. it, to me, it's a head scratcher that it's been it what is, it has been. Especially since it wasn't, I mean, Clark Lee was a disciplined, do it the right way kind of guy. And it, that was not an issue for Marcus Freeman's defense as Cincinnati. So you wonder, was it a practice? Was it how they practiced? Was it, you know, was was it a lack of talent? Because look, if I tried to go out there and tackle Notre Dame's receivers, I'd look pretty stupid too, right? Because I don't have the talent to do it when when other players are just better than you. You can look like you can't tackle very well. Is it that? Is was it was it they didn't ta- they didn't practice tackling technique enough? Was it 
you know, something that maybe the head coach did. I'm not trying to throw Brian Kelly into the bus. I'm just throwing out options. You know, the, the head coach that did not allow you to. I mean, have you don't have to. You don't have to well, try, right? But I don't. I don't know if it was. I'm just trying to think of like what could all be the possible reasons why, even though under two defensive coordinators that we all respect and think are good coaches, tackling was just an issue for them uh, for 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 so for so for so long. Really, I mean, since what now we're talking three seasons. So that's part of it too. They have to become a more disciplined team because. Missed tackles aren't going to hurt you in nine of your games this year, but yeah. they can get you beat against Notre, you know, against North, uh, excuse me, Ohio State, Clemson, and and uh, USC, and so that's the third one for me. So we kind of went personnel and position groups on the first two. The third one for me is they have to they have to be a more disciplined football team, which includes assignment correctness, which means limiting big plays and creating big plays for yourself, but then also being a better tackling team. So when you tackle a guy on third and five and you tackle him at four yards or hit him at four yards. Bring them down to four yards. I agree. Yep. That's a big key. Yep. Uh, Ira Shytown wants to know about special teams. This wasn't really something that we were going to touch mm-hmm. on today. I do think they were, they'll be different. He wants to know how special teams are going to change. I think just based on what we've seen from uh, Coach Mason, he wants to know how they have changed under Mason. What we've seen from him, what, we, what we've heard from him is like, They'll go, they'll go after some kicks, mm-hmm. you know, they'll actually try to block some kicks. They're not just going to play passive and then not even set up a return half the time. And, you know, there, so uh, to me, the biggest change is going to be, we're going to see a little bit more aggressiveness. I think, you know, yeah. down in the trenches at the line of scrimmage, going after kicks, whether they're field goals or punts or, or whatever they happen to be, there's, there's going to be a different attitude when it comes to that, that we, that we didn't see. Uh, over the last what five years under Brian yeah. Polian, Notre Dame blocked one kick last year. Yeah, Cincinnati blocked six. Right, and, and here was the maddening thing for me, Sean. I understand the return game is different than it used to be. Right, the 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 arrival of you know sort of the spread punt away from what you and I kind of grew up on, which is like you know you have your your whole line and then there's the two wings and the personal protector and you know and then when we were when we were growing up it was when you were trying to protect a punt I mean you were blocking first you had to retreat first for two seconds secure and then go right and that created a lot more so with the spread punt what they've done is there's now more guys free releasing down the field so it makes it a little harder to like set up a wall right like anyone that's covered high school football you probably I don't know you may still see the wall in high school but it used to be where that would be in college as well you know I remember my freshman year when I was playing receiver, we, I was on special teams and we would work on the wall. You don't see that anymore because of the change in the spread. So my whole thing is, if you're not going to be a team that sets up a lot of returns, then why aren't you more aggressive going after the punt? And that's what was so maddening is you'd see like five Notre Dame guys just kind of jog off the line and engage and just stand there. And it's like either get back and set up the return or I don't know. Here's a crazy thought: Go after the punt. Exactly. You know, it and just... it's it's like there there was there was a fear. You know, mm-hmm. and it, to me, it's more like a high school attitude than a college attitude. Like, oh, we might get a penalty. You know, if we go after it. Well, and teach them, yeah, you, teach them better. Might, you got to do something. Yeah, teach them better. That's right. exactly right. Because with blocked punts, here's the thing. So six block punts out of you know how many how many times did Cincinnati teams punt last year? I'm I'm actually going to go go look this up. Uh, oppo- opposing teams punted 
let's see here, 71 times last year. Oh, they blocked six out of 71. But what we can't account for statistically, Sean, is how many punts were line drives because they were trying to rush the kickoff so it didn't get blocked. How right. many how were many shanked were bad, out of yeah, There you go. Bad yardage, that kind of thing. Right, yep. right. And so, you know, those are the things you look at and say, you know, I mean, the, you you, you want to be able to evaluate it that way. And, and those are the differences in field position that you can look at and say, you know, that can be the difference between a win or a loss. I mean, if you take out, for example, the Clemson game in 2015, what happens in that game that Notre Dame lost by two points at the end of the game if one of Clemson's early scores didn't come off of a 15-yard punt from Tyler Newsom, right, that gave them an easy, you know, thir- what, like 30, 35-yard drive to score a second touchdown? Those kind of plays in big games where you don't block the punt but you force a shank – can be the difference between winning and losing football games. And to me, that's the that's the big key. Yep, I agree. What's up, Jesse? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for showing up. How you doing? <laughs> hey, I'm doing okay. <laughs> so we were just talking a little defense there, obviously. And uh, I think we're going to segue into the offense now. So you can kind of chime in here as well as we go through our checklist for success you and you and brian hit basically two out of the three things you know that were uh the defensive checklist so you were right on point with with two out of the three i'll just start with with offensively hold on all which st- one was he wrong about uh well, <laughs> well he <laughs> hey now <laughs> he he had some specific linebacker okay um, yeah. stuff that that he was going to talk about yeah. and i think maybe we'll save that here for a couple of a couple of um Basically, when I'm back from vacation, sounds good. <laughs> so we can we can get into that a little bit more at that point. Everything offensively, as I go through my offensive checklist, it starts with the offensive line. We know the offensive line has to be better. It's the biggest one for me. They only averaged 4.1 yards per carry last year, down almost a full yard from the year before. And you know that it was the second worst yards per carry of Brian Kelly's tenure at Notre Dame in his 12 years. The worst was 2010, the first one. And, you know, there's no way this isn't going to get better between everybody that they're bringing back now and bringing in Harry Heastan. Like when you look back at Heastan, his last line was 2017. Now, of course, they had Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey, but they also averaged 6.3 yards per carry. And, you know, like I've been kind of keeping an eye on some of the comments in the YouTube tonight and and Michael Campbell you know there's some points that Michael Campbell has but you know he's he's really going hard after you know Tommy Reese he says in the bowl game you know it was good but it was sniffed out because we didn't make the adjustments to keep scoring Tommy Reese offense got figured out and couldn't close now here's where I would disagree with that I don't think it's necessarily about the you know the Oklahoma State solved the defense and they couldn't close well they couldn't close because they knew going in that with that offensive line and without Kyron Williams, they were not going to be able to run the ball effectively. And, you know, ultimately that leads to what you had in the second half when they're not able to run the ball at all, you know, to, to, you know, shorten the game a little bit, run the ball, you know, run some clock, do all of those things. And everything just starts with the offensive line. That's, that's what it comes down to way too many sacks allowed last year, 35 sacks allowed. And again, the 4.1 for, per carry. So this has got to be better, but I do have full confidence that it is going to be a lot better. I mean, like when you have Alton Fisher, I think you've probably got the, you know, the two best, you know, the, the best pairing 
of sophomore tackles in the country mm-hmm. right there. And then just, just the experience you've got everywhere else. I guess maybe the biggest question is just like, one, what the health of, of Patterson is going to be coming back. And obviously we're looking at him potentially moving from center, you know, to left guard possibly. And, you know, kind of how that shakes out the, you know, the, the, the interior of that offensive line, but that's, it, it all starts with, with the offensive line for me. Well, look, Sean, I've, I've called plays before, you know, Jesse, you were a good high school football player. That's why I tried to recruit you or, uh, or I, where I was at my last stop. You can call all the plays you want. You can make all the adjustments if you want. If you don't have the horses to pull it off, it doesn't matter. All right, and this is the thing that I that I always point to. It, 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 Tommy Reese, if you go back and break down the film, they made adjustments. It just they didn't work because two things happened. One, the offensive line was one, and two, they just came up and pressed the corners or the receivers, and the receivers had no ability to get off the press. So all the RPO stuff that was so effective early was negated, mm-hmm. and now you couldn't get off the line and get open. And so, you know, look, I've got to have something I can go to that's going to work, and when your offensive line can't block, there's there's not a lot to turn to at that point in time. And you were facing a defense that finished number one in the nation in sacks and you threw the ball a bunch and you were able to protect, but it's just like when you can't move, when you can't run the football and they, they know you can't run the football. Uh, there's not a lot you can do. So Bad position. Yep. It, it's the same thing that we talked about on the other side of the ball, right? Like if you, in today's football, and I don't know how it is in the NFL, I don't watch a lot of NFL, but in college football, I still believe that if you want to be a great team, you have to be able to thrive in the trenches on both sides of the ball. Right. And I think that's especially true for a team like Notre Dame. If Notre Dame doesn't have a dominant offensive line this year, they won't have a dominant offense. I don't care what happens at all the other positions. When we talk about what the standard is for Notre Dame, which is to compete for and win a championship, you won't see them doing that with a mediocre line like Clemson had in 2018 or 2016. It's going to have to be around a 2015-2017 type of offensive line. And it's not a shocker that the two best offensive lines that Notre Dame has had also were blocking for the two best offenses that Notre Dame has had in the last, you know, 12 years. So, yes, you're right. That's got to be the key. When you have a line that can block, it gives an offensive coordinator a whole lot of things that he can go to. Yep. And that's why I'm I'm a lot more confident that this offensive line or this offense will be better because Tom Reese is going to have some things he can go to. Like I can drop all the great route combinations in the world. And, you know, you know, Jesse, you're a defensive coordinator, right? And I'm going against you and I've got all these great concepts and I got better athletes than you got. What's your one neutralizer? Okay. Well, you can't do all those things if your quarterback's laying on his backside. Right. And that's, that's the, the great, you know, negator. And so Notre Dame didn't have the ability to prevent that at times last year, this year, I think they will. And that's why I think this team's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, kind of piggybacking off some of the stuff that Brian was saying, you become very one-dimensional when you have an offensive line that can't uh, consistently play well. Um, and like he was saying, you know, when you when you go against teams that you know has not a you know a good offensive line or maybe a young offensive line, you can kind of pin your ears back a little bit and, and really try to rush the quarterback. I think that's what we saw early on last year with Notre Dame is they they became so one-dimensional and and, and it's kind of predictable uh, and bringing up their corners and stuff like that, and it, it really hurt them. But going forward this year, I think that Notre Dame, uh, I think a lot of their success will hinge on what this offensive line can do. Uh, because like you said, without a good offensive line, you're not going to be able to open up your playbook. Tommy Reese knows that. And I think, you know, that group getting that experience last year was really beneficial, uh, especially the, that younger nucleus. Uh, so going forward this year, I really like I really like the that the odds of them being better as a unit. Um, and, and overall, I think that'll help their offense uh, run a lot better as well. But I was just I, I chuckled because, you know, the experience, you know, it was 
excruciatingly painful to watch, (laughs) but the experience was very valuable. But now you also bring in, you know, you bring the Zen master back, Harry Heastand, to work with these guys. You have someone who's actually going to focus on, you know, the the smallest attention to detail. We, you know, and to me that's, you know, like everyone talks about Harry's, you know, his his hard demeanor and you know his language, you know, his colorful language and all these different things. To me, it comes down to the guy. You know, he's not just a taskmaster master. He is a teacher, and he starts. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it kind of reminds me. You know, the same kind of things that we were hearing about Mike Elko when he came in his first year running that defense. Because like we stood out there all spring, and you couldn't necessarily. You know, in Elko's first spring, and it's like, eh, well, I don't know. You know, it's like, <laughs> what did we really see? You know, we didn't really see a lot. But look how much better that defense was right. the next year under someone who was actually, you know, out there, you know, earning his keep and. And coaching it, and that's that's exactly what Harry Heastan is going to be right. when you've got the talent that they've got to start with, and some experience, and now you hone it in you know in the proper way. I just think this is going to be a much much improved offensive line this year. What's going to be funny is this is actually going to be a less experienced offensive line than last year's was. Remember we heard that mantra because Kane Madden had so many starts and all that. It's that's like true. You're going to have two true sophomores in the starting lineup this year. Yeah, and and, and you know so it. it it always kind of made me laugh when he would talk about the lack of experience. And I know that's not what you're referring to, Sean, but we're talking about, we're looking at this offensive line and when the line, if you look at it outside of Jared Patterson, who was your two best offensive linemen last year when they were on the field, it was Joe Walton, Blake Fisher. Exactly. And, and they both gave up a sack in the, in the Rose bowl. One was a covered sack, but that was against the best pass rush in college football. And they threw the ball. They called over 70 pass plays in that game. You know, so I'd say they held up relatively well. But at the end of the day, you'd like to say, hey, well, they're, you know, the, 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 they've got not just the five starters, but Tosh Baker got a couple starts last year. Michael Carmody got some starts last year. Andrew Kristoffik is battling for a starting job. He actually was one of the key cogs to the line solidifying and selling down in the second half of the year. And he's having a hard time staying in the lineup this year. I think right. it says a lot about the depth of the line. So as you said, Sean, it was brutal to watch last year. But I do think it's going to pay off for them for them this year. And we saw that a little bit in 2016 as well, right? Like McGlinchey and Nelson both played well in 2016. They were both All-Americans. One was the second, one was the third. But the rest of the line, you know, was a little bit of a problem, especially at right guard. Well, that ended up paying off in 2017 because, you know, you were able to move some guys around. So Alex right. Bards went from tackle to guard. He was even better at guard than he was tackle. Sounds a lot like Josh Lugg, right? You know, you had an experienced center coming back, and now it's going to be kind of Jarrett, you know, Jarrett Patterson moving over. But, you know, Zeke Carell stepping into that, he's now got a lot more experience under his belt. Some of it wasn't always good. Some of it was, especially at center. And it just reminds me a lot of that 2017. And then you had somebody new stepping, a new young guy stepping in at right tackle, which was a combination of two young guys, Robert uh, Hainsey and Tommy Kramer, very similar to what we're talking about now. So, you know, he showed that year that I don't necessarily need experience across the board if I have talent. And, and that's what we saw in 2017. And the 2015 team was very similar. Remember, I mean, Quentin Nelson was a redshirt freshman that year. You know, Mike McGlinchey going into 2015 had one career start, and that was in the Music City Bowl against LSU. Yeah. And he turned that into a, a really dominant offensive line. And I think he's – I mean, he's got to be – and this is one thing I heard from sources, Sean, coming into the years. Part of the reason Coach Eastan wanted to come back after Brian Kelly left was – he looked at what they had and was like, I can do something with this. <laughs> I can work with you this. Know? <laughs> like, yeah, I can do something with this. And I think he will. 
All right. Jess, you know, we were going to do this checklist originally, and I know you were going to focus more on defense. You haven't had a chance to say much yet since you've jumped in. Do, do, do you have anything that you want to chime in with that would be on your offensive checklist, or you just, you know, kind of want to go with what, what we were going to talk about already? No, I, I really think kind of piggybacking a lot off what Brian said, I, I think the main concern with a young quarterback is how dominant can this offensive line be in the trenches and what kind of pressure uh, can they provide and relief for Buckner considering he's, you know, he, it, nothing is definite yet, but he, it, you know, it's looking like he's going to be the, the starter. Um, it, it, having that offensive line that can provide a security blanket with a young quarterback is super helpful um, and it, it, I think it'll ultimately slow the game down for him a little bit. And, you know, you've ta I've talked to you about this before. I think Notre Dame really has to um, establish some sort of run game uh, when it comes to, to Buckner as well, because that's only going to help him in the long run as well. And then you can play off play action off of that. You can do more designed runs with Buckner because they have to respect, uh, you know, more of that run game RPO type action. Uh, and that only comes if you have an offensive line that can dominate and give you the time needed to execute some of these plays. Um, another big aspect is I think you have to have some sort of number one legit wide receiver. I mean, we all know Michael Michael Mayer is, is, is a stud. He's one of the, to me, one of the best top, you know, top tight ends in the country. Uh, so having him on the field is really going to open up uh, some, some other, you know, some looks for some other wide receivers, but someone has to take over as that wide receiver one and be able to, you know, to, to tag team almost with Michael Mayer down there in coverage because if they're going to try to you know double team or play a guy over top of Mayer, that only helps out the other wide receivers on the field but right. someone has to step up in order for in order for them to to capitalize on that situation yeah to me what's next on my checklist and you kind of you know hit a little bit of of what I was going to talk about the quarterback you know quarterback is is next after the offensive line to me but Along with that, because of the fact that you're going to have a dual threat quarterback, because like, you know, we're talking about, well, the offensive line has to be better. We know they have to be better, giving up all those sacks and only, you know, 4.1 per carry last year. But think back to that 2017 season that we were just referencing. They averaged 6.3 yards per carry, you know, the, the most of Brian Kelly's tenure and, and one of the biggest rushing totals that you're going to see well what did they have they had brandon wimbush they had a dual threat quarterback who ran for over 800 yards himself and josh adams so i think that buckner you know one he's not just going to be a running quarterback so that's that's not what i'm trying to say but because of the fact that he has to be accounted for in the running game you know like with that with that zone read and and that kind of thing we knew that jack Cohn was never going to pull the ball well we know that tyler buckner can pull the ball and we also know that he's got a good arm now the other you know the, the other part of this is is he can't just be a runner obviously he still has to get better as a passer we saw some improvement from him as a passer in the spring he's got to be more efficient specifically he's got to be more accurate especially in those money downs you know when it's third down you know and he that, that's that's where it, but I mean look he looked last year like a guy who hadn't played in over a year because that's what he was because his senior season in high school, you know, was canceled due to COVID, you know, like a lot of other people. But so that's, you know, it's the offensive line is where you start. But then after that, again, with a dual threat guy like Tyler Buckner, as long as he's making the right decisions and 
Also, as long as he can stay healthy, because that is a thing, you know, he, he does have at least, you know, the, the injury prone, you know, kind of label that goes with him right now. So that's the next biggest thing to me is what they get out of that quarterback position. But again, because of the athleticism that he has and everything that, you know, the, the multidimensional nature of his game, I think that can really go a long way for that offense this season. Yeah. Kind of just going off of what you were saying right there, if, if Buckner can, you know, have, provides a threat of being able to run the ball in those RPO schemes, that is that goes from a two-option offense to a third-option offense. And if they respect that, you know, those are guys that they have to commit whether or not he, he pulls it or not. So him being able to run the ball is such another adds such another big dimension to this offense. Um, but like you said, you got to be careful because you know no one wants to see the quarterback get hurt or get his ankle twisted up you know, an RPO read where he, he pulls it and takes it himself. And I know Buckner likes to run. He's a big guy and we've seen him, you know, lower his shoulder down before. And, you know, he doesn't, he, he embraces that contact, but he's got to be smart. And, and I think that's something that Tommy Reese has probably gone over with him is, you know, we're going to have these zone option reads, uh, but you know, we can't be running them almost every play. You can't, you know, I, I know what the read is giving you, uh, but you can't be taking hits like that. And especially uh, if he's going to be able, be able to throw accurately, that's, that's the biggest thing is, on those RPO on uh, those RPO reads, you got to get the ball out quick, and you got to get the ball out on the money, you know, right on the numbers, right on the hands, so those guys have the, the ability to catch and run. So I think the biggest things for Buckner this year will be one his 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 ability to make reads, um, and then second, being able to put the ball on the guys right on the number. I think accuracy will be his biggest thing this year. I don't think necessarily yeah. we have to worry about, you know, the long balls down the field. I think we need to be able to see him complete the five to ten route. 10-yard slants, the ins and outs, the comebacks, the curls, all those routes, short intermediate routes left. that are timing routes and where you're putting the ball on them and it has to be there at the right time, uh, right on the numbers. Yep, I agree. The final thing on my checklist, and like you were talking about finding the number one right wide receiver, I think this is, I mean, I think that one is going to emerge. You know, it might just be Lorenzo Styles. You know, I think that he would be the front runner coming into the season. But I think just mixing and matching the offensive skill position players for maximum success is going to be a key. Like, especially when you just look at the numbers, you know, like what they've got when you've got three running back, three healthy scholarship running backs coming into the season, because you've got a couple of guys banged up right now. You look at that and you look at just where the numbers are at wide receiver and you've got Avery Davis coming back from an ACL. You've got Joe Wilkins coming back from injury. You know, so one of the things that Tommy Reese has has done really well as offensive coordinator is suit the offense to the strengths of the personnel that he has available. Like we saw him make the mid-season adjustment last year, you know, going getting the ball out of Jack Cone's hand quicker, you know, to help sort of uh, you know, the fact that the offensive line <laughs> had the issues that it had and because they you know, had trouble running the ball. We saw that. You go back a couple of years when it was so tight end heavy and, you know, and all that stuff with Tommy Tremble. And so we've seen him run different offenses already, you know, and then look at what he did in the Fiesta Bowl. Now, again, I, I know that people want to knock him for that, but, you know, we kind of went through that. The fact that you didn't have an offensive line, the defense you were going up against, and no Kyron Williams in the Fiesta Bowl, I, I really think I'm not giving – you know, like Tommy Reese and, and Marcus Freeman, a complete free pass. But there are reasons, you know, like if, if you could just 
hand the ball off and get four yards of carry in the second half, you're probably going to win that game. But they averaged two yards of carry for the game, you know. So, but again, specific to this season, I think it's going to be a little bit of a mix and match job. You know, there's some different things, you know, like how you use Michael Mayer. Can you actually run two back sets? Because the fact that, that now, you know, Chris Tyree is such a good pass catcher. How, how do you employ him in that fashion, considering the fact that you only have three, you know, again, three healthy scholarship running backs coming into the season? I think it's going to be maybe a little bit of a shell game, moving some things around, and that's going to be, a, a you know, a big part of this, especially early on in the season. Like if they can get Logan Diggs back in the middle of the season somewhere, that's going to help considerably. But that's that that to me is going to be a big, big factor in this season is how Tommy – Reese employs this personnel with what he has available to him, which again, you know, in some spots is not a lot. No, yeah, I agree. I think that uh, we might be able to see some of the creative genius of Tommy Reese this season of really, no, I I think he's got a lot of pieces here to work with uh, very, you know, very high level pieces, but how can he get creative and how can he schematically, you know, out, I guess I could say out scheme uh, some of these defenses and get creative with the, the chess pieces that he has. Cause you have, you know, you have some big pieces like Michael Mayer. I think Lorenzo Styles will be another big piece. I think uh, Tyree will be a big piece. I think Diggs can be a big piece when he gets healthy. And if you can have, you know, a one, two punch of Diggs and Tyree, uh, I think that's going to be very beneficial for a guy like Buckner and a guy like Mayer. Cause you know, you have to, you're saying you have to respect those guys. And then at the same time, you also have to respect Mayer. So I think this season will be largely, you know, predicated around Tommy Reese's ability to to use his uh, use his weapons and be able to get them open schematically. I think there's going to be a lot of kind of almost timing routes for Buckner. I think he's going to have you know one one to two reads that he's looking at per play, and his main read is going to be you know predicated by what Tommy Reese was trying to do to get that guy open. Yeah. So that's our checklist for success for Notre Dame offensively and defensively this season a few things on each side of the ball thanks to brian driscoll for jumping in and and uh, jesse for getting in here as well before i get to the chris niesel interview all-star game last night jess fill in the blank the all-star uniforms were blank the all-star uniforms for me were actually hit and miss i love the all white with the gold accent that the nl wore I do not like uh, what I call the prison grays that the AL wore. <laughs> I just think those don't look good, especially when you know it's hot out. It's sunny LA, and you know you're going out there with these kind of dark gray uniforms. I didn't mind uh, the white ones, like I said, that the NL wore. But if it were up to me, why don't we just go back to the old school and guys just wear their their teams and their hats because then it's more fun. I think you see, you know, where the guys come from, the 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 variety of uniforms. Um, and I think it's more honorable, you know, it, it shows to me, it's more of like a, an honor of, of being at the all-star game when you get to wear your own Jersey and cap and represent your team, especially when you're a guy like, you know, a guy, the, the pitcher for the ace, he's the only guy for the ace. He's the lone guy. So, uh, you know, some of these teams where it's a lone guy, it's, it's, it's nice to see that representation of just wearing your own uniform. Yeah, I think so too. Like at the very least they could have, you know, like just let them wear their own hats out there or something, but you know, because they used to like they'd wear their uniforms and they'd give them a little bit like an all-star hat, basically, with with a different design. I agree. I, I didn't mind the white ones with with the gold. They looked pretty good. Uh, the the all black thing, the you know the prison stuff that you were talking Man. about. I, 
the I yeah, Chi Town Irish is is right there. I think that that is everyone's probably biggest knock on uh, on those All Star Game uniforms last night. The American League uniforms were just atrocious out there. I could not. I just <laughs> yeah. I I you know again I can I feel like you know you're in the you know the younger age demographic. I feel like and it's funny because. Chris Neisel, who you're going to hear coming up, he actually works for an analytics company. It's called Databricks, and his company provides analytics to all these different professional sports teams, including some analytics. Like, they're working with MLB right now to help them sort of figure out what younger people will engage with because the average age of... of uh, of a major league baseball fan right now is like 58 years old. And so, you know, that's troubling for baseball. They want to see that get a lot younger, obviously. And, you know, so he was talking about some different things that they're working with them with on, you know, like social media and those kind of things. I've got to think that these uniforms are geared toward that, but you know, it's mostly like the older people that I hear complaining. I don't even know if, he, uh, you know, enough young people are watching to like go, yeah, those were cool uniforms, you know. So I, I've got a feeling that's who it's geared toward. But I'm I'm like you. I, I would prefer they just wear, you know, the regular uniform out there. I think it looks I, I always think it looks cool to see everyone in their own uniform, you know, when they're on the same team in the All-Star game. All right, Jess. Well, I appreciate you coming in tonight and uh we're gonna step back now and i've got the interview with chris niesel coming up i will talk to you very soon sounds good thanks for having me for the for the short time i was able to get in here today <laughs> absolutely glad you could make it <laughs> all right so uh what we're going to do now is uh bring in chris niesel he's from the 2002 notre dame college world series team and i uh, had a chance to catch up with him and a lot of good insight including the nickname that everyone knows that Jeff Samarja has that Chris Niesel gave Jeff Samarja. We're going to hear about that right now. Chris Niesel was a freshman pitcher on Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team. He played a big part in that postseason run to Omaha. He ended up being drafted by the Cleveland Indians a couple years later after his junior season, and he's with us right now. How are you doing, Chris? Doing well, Sean. Yeah, good to be here. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Great to see you. And uh, I guess, you know, when you sit back and think about that 2002 season specifically, 20 years later, what are what are maybe some of the first things that kind of come to mind for you? You know, I obviously I've thought about it a lot recently with uh, this year's run from Notre Dame baseball and their um, their amazing uh, appearance in the College World Series. But yeah, I mean, what I think about a lot is just really the teammates that we had. And, and I think that that was the best pure team I'd ever been a part of and just how we all gelled together and had each other's back and really had times that we played in the country. So just have a lot of really good memories of, of the team atmosphere. And uh, the run that we made was nothing short of spectacular as well. And just yeah. probably some of the best, best times of my life, you know, some of the most happy times and uh, definitely just proud to be a member of that team. Well, and you're a freshman and, you know, and like getting 
so those guys and I've made comment being around a lot of different teams back in those days that I agree with what you started with just the pure team aspect you know there's so and it obviously started with the leadership from Ty, you know the player leadership even with you know Steve Stanley and you know Andy Bushy and on down the line that you know the veterans on yep. that group and you know mixing in the veterans and and then young guys like you and Grant Johnson and some of the, you know, coming in and, and being part of, you know, such a big part of that run as well. There was just a great mix, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. And it, I think it says a lot about the culture at Notre Dame, the school as well as the baseball team, right? It's like you bring in the number one recruiting class that year. We were fortunate enough to be ranked uh, the number one recruiting class with a team of, of guys that had already been there, you know, three years, well-established. And you never really know how those two groups are going to mix, right? Right. But um, but but again, uh, everybody really got along. I mean, you know, we didn't really have those clubhouse conflicts that that you see in in most teams. Um, we gelled together. You had young pitching coupled with uh, great position players that were well established and and just a tried and true lineup. So um, it was just a, a cool dynamic and, again, something that I was just so happy to be a part of. You came right out of the shoot. I remember that your 10 strikeouts in your college debut. You strike out nine in your next start, and it's like, you know, here's this, here's this, you know, fireballer, you know, with a good curveball as well. But, I mean, you're not a big guy. You, you know, you're like 5'11", but you yeah. had good velocity on that fastball. Where, where did that velocity that you had come, you know, where did you know, it come from? I I think a certain aspect of every athlete has some God-given talent, and then there's a whole lot of hard work, grit, determination, and work ethic that goes sure. along along with it. But where I really – and it's funny, my, my nephew is at the same age where I think um, young athletes start to change, especially males going from their freshman year of yeah. school to their sophomore. Um, and that's where things start to change for me, and, and then – even again, I, I feel like I hit another step going from junior to, to my senior season in high school and never really looked back uh, physically from there and just kept kept growing and, and developing. But uh, but yeah, you know, coming out of the gate as a freshman at, at Notre Dame and, and getting those 10 and nine strikeouts, um, I was definitely fired up. And I think <laughs> adrenaline had a lot to do with that as well. <laughs> I, you know, when I watched, that you always reminded me of and I, I i don't know if we you know this was a discussion we ever had back then i'll, I'll let you know who who my guy is I'll, i want to see if what you say first you know was there ever anyone you know from back then you know you really you know sort of tried to emulate any of that kind of thing you know uh i don't i don't know that I did per se. I know my dad always wanted me to mirror Greg Maddox, but okay. I, don't, I don't think I don't think I give myself that much credit. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, you know, a guy named Tim Hudson, maybe. Uh, yeah, that was a, you know, power powerball sinker guy with a, a good slider and curveball. That that maybe there was some comparisons to, but I'm curious of who you're thinking about. Well, that's funny that you know they probably had a better fastball than Maddox. <laughs> to begin with yeah he was obviously a lot more control david cone is always the guy yeah. who came to mind for your similar size he might have been a shade taller than yeah. you you know and he might have been you know a little bit more you know three-quarter slot or, or whatever but you know very very similar i thought and especially you know just the uh 
the competitiveness, you know, that both of you guys had. What do what do you think about Cone? Yeah, I, I like that comparison. I mean, hey, great <laughs> great career in the in the big leagues. Um, I think again, going back to every athlete's born with something. I think that bulldog mentality was uh, yeah, partially sure. born with, but uh, always tried to escalate my game with runners on base, and I think he did a good job at that too. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, I'm cool with the comparison. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm I'm glad we're you know that's not not bad then. Yeah. So. Your freshman season's rolling along, you know, you're doing pretty well. All of a sudden, it's early April, and you come down with mono. Do you remember, you know, kind of like when, you know, things started feeling wrong? You know, was there kind of a moment that you remember? You know, I just remember being a little bit tired and that something was was off, um, which when you're, when you're that young and, you know, you're firing on all cylinders to play, and it was, yeah. it was unlike me, so... Uh, so yeah, I remember going to the doctor and getting the news, which was uh, definitely a setback. It's funny, you know, how things work out. It, it I feel like now is almost a little bit of a, a blessing in disguise. It was like maybe God telling me, "Hey, take take a step back and uh, you know re- relax a little bit. Good things are coming." Because obviously we had a, a run that was that was coming up, and I was going to be called upon to to contribute to and. I felt like I was like a, a horse at the starting gate when I came back, <laughs> like just ready to roll, you know, just being being in a dorm room by yourself for six, four to six weeks, whatever it was. Um, I was so amped up to come back and contribute to the team. And um, we were already in the playoffs at that point. Quarantine before quarantine, I guess. <laughs> you know, yeah, I guess. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. You know, then you did, you know, you came back and I remember it seemed like you – they brought you in in relief, like your first t- your first few times back, right? Do you remember it? So, like, did you feel? You know, were you did, were you feeling pretty close to one hundred percent right away? You know, yeah, I was feeling one hundred percent. I think they wanted to stagger me coming back a little bit just because of concerns around stamina and you know pitch count and sure they didn't want me to you know maybe go out and throw a hundred pitches in the first start, which give credit to to Maneri and O'Connor on that. They always were looking out for a pitcher's best interest, so. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I absolutely remember coming in relief, which was was new to me. You know, I was always a starter up until that point. And, uh, but again, fired up to to come in in relief and close a couple games out. Well, then you guys are hosting the NCAA regional that year as the number seed, and you're basically the number three starter for the. Win. You did pitch in relief though, in in the opener of that game, did they kind of, you know, did. did Brian O'Connor, you referenced there the pitching coach, Palmer. Did they kind of lay out what the plan was for you going into the weekend? Yeah, I remember them them telling me, "Hey, you know, we're, we're um, it's it's possible that you come in in relief in a key situation. Just be ready." Um, and and all in that day, all pitchers were ready. We all had our spikes on. There was no wearing turf, I bet. Like, <laughs> like in pro ball. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, I, I do remember them you know, hinting at, Hey, you know, just be ready to come out of the gate. And then I sure was. So. <laughs> well, and then two days later, you, I think you know, got a couple outs in, in, in relief in that opener. And then you start on Sunday and it's the clincher. If you win, you're, you know, you're going to win the regional. If you lose, there's going to be another game coming up, but you, you know, you came out six strong innings, anything really stand out to you, you know, from your start that day? Ah. Uh... That day, uh, that was Ohio State, correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah, I 
I remember giving up a, a hit in between second and first that I was so mad at the pitch selection that I made. That's probably the biggest thing that I remember about that game, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, 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 threw, I, I had a pretty solid game, but I remember I threw a changeup where I should have threw a fastball, and I was still kicking myself for that. Um, but no, you know, overall, it was, it was it was such a compliment to be called upon in that that situation. Right. Because it was it was such a big game. And I was just happy that I could contribute to, to the team and um, getting us a win and, and moving on to the Super. Well, you know, you talk about pitch selection and talk to Paulo Tool about this. He was he was a senior, you know, your catcher and, and all that. And he had he played a big part in uh, in pit, pitch selection. Did you guys ever, um, you know, have any disagreements, I guess, or, or were you guys on the <laughs> on the same page for the most part most of the time? You know, for the most part, I think we were on the same page. There's there's definitely uh, disagreements that that came up, but but that's what was cool about about that team and about you know pitching to a guy like Paul O'Toole. Uh, if you had the confidence in the pitch, right? That's ultimately what matters. You're you're the one throwing the ball, so there was never too many too much pushback on on shaking him off. You know, unless he really had a strong opinion, then he wasn't afraid to to drop his mask and call timeout and come out to the mound, right. <laughs> as you know. Right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that just goes back to like our, our team app atmosphere and, and connection that we had and trusting one another. Well, and you faced Nick. I was going to say you faced Nick Swisher that day as well from Ohio State. He ended up being a first round pick. Do, do you remember any of those at bats at all? I I don't know if I remember specific at bats. I think he got one hit off me. I, I'm not. Sounds I'm not right. Sure. Yeah, but uh, I know they had a couple key guys on that team. I ended up playing in the Indians organization with um, w- with one of their pitchers, and we we had talked about that game uh, a couple times. And I, I definitely reminded him that that we won. Uh, <laughs> For <laughs> and, sure, and moved on. But uh, but yeah, it's it's funny. There's there's so many guys that you come across, you know, when you when you play in uh, in the professional in after college, and you know, there's so many different guys from from different teams, and you you share these little stories, or even from your hometown. Yeah. Um, so it's always good to have a, a good laugh, especially when you're on the winning side, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's always the best way when you can, yeah. like you said, kind of anything they say, you've always got that to fall back on. Yeah. At the end of the day, I guess so. So you win that regional, and now you go to the, the program's first Super Regional, and it's at Florida State, which I don't think I even mentioned at, at the top. You're from the state of Florida, of course, and, you know, your dad's alma mater was Florida State. You know, so was there kind of an extra special feeling going into that weekend for you to get to go back down there? Absolutely. Um, you know, my whole family was able to to come to that series, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, going down to Florida State, I think the whole team had a little chip on their shoulder, but I definitely did too because I wasn't recruited by Florida State, um, which was surprising because the other Florida schools were I was pretty heavily recruited by. Hmm. Um, so that was always in the back of my mind <laughs> uh, going down there. But, but going down to – yeah, <laughs> going down to face the number one team in the nation um, in a place like in a place like that with such a storied baseball uh, history and, and stadium and atmosphere, um, it, it it was uh, it was definitely a challenge. But but our team, we were up for it. You know, we uh, 
we weren't scared of anybody. And I think Coach Maneri did a great job of prepping us for that and getting our mindset correct that we could play with anybody in the nation. And don't worry about a ranking. You know, it's just a number. Right. Um, go out there and play your game. Right. And of course, you guys won the first game. Then Florida State turns around. They win the second game. So now it's the decisive game three. It's it's winner take all. If you win, you're going to the College World Series. What uh, what maybe you know as the game three starter and a freshman and all these other things I just mentioned back in your home state and your dad's connection and everything else, your family's there. What were you? Uh, what 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 kind of feelings did you have waking up that morning in Tallahassee, getting ready for that start? Uh, def- definitely some nerves, some butterflies, you know, <laughs> obviously it's a, it's a big game. It's a game three, but, um, but I was ready to roll. I had been pitching good up to that point. My arm was, was rested. Um, going back to the kind of the blessing from mono, I felt really well rested. I, one of the things I remember about that, that game wasn't actually in the game. It was, it was warming up and, I felt like, you know, I was missing my spots. I didn't feel really sharp in warming up for that game. And I remember Coach O'Connor saying to me, hey, you look great. Go get them. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, positive reinforcement, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, but once once I took them out, I think the nerves nerves settled down and uh, I was ready to roll and I ended up, you know, obviously having a pretty good game. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the, the the plan that day was, okay, well, let's see if maybe Chris can can go five. And then they had Ryan Kalita and JP Ganya, you know, behind you in the bullpen. You end up going eight, though. You know, like you talk about yeah. maybe a rough bullpen, but did that end up being maybe as good as you felt all season by the time it was all said and done? I I think so. Yeah, we we were fortunate enough. We, we had great defense that day. I remember some uh, – couple plays in particular, one by Brian Stavisky down the line, a diving catch, um, a couple I plays. I think that was like the last out that you threw, right? Like, a, yeah, like um, the end of the eighth inning, maybe. That got us out of – yeah, it got us out of a jam in one of the uh, one of the later innings. I don't know if it was the seventh or eighth, but uh, it was towards the end of the game. And then I also remember a couple key plays by the middle infield by – I think Javi Sanchez was playing shortstop at that yep. point for us. And, um and right. Solman up the middle. So, yeah, we, we we didn't make any mistakes. We played sound fundamental baseball. And then, you know, there was a couple, uh, I think, big strikeouts as well that I was fortunate enough to get and um, was able to settle down and be pretty sharp that game. And, you know, we just – the whole team played a really well-rounded, solid game. We um, had some clutch hitting and uh, solid defense, and we were able to, to put them away. JP coming in in that ninth inning and – Oh my gosh! That was striking just, out the side. Yeah. Amazing, <laughs> amazing that that changeup he had. Guy, I wish I had that changeup. Uh, <laughs> and it's he's he's talked about it that it's almost like a screwball just with between the movement that he had because there was so much. Yeah. There was just so you know it was almost you know again like a combination you know like a curveball slash changeup. There was so much break on it. Yeah, I don't even know what to call that pitch. It was uh, <laughs> the way he held it and threw it. I I, I couldn't throw I couldn't throw it like that. It was amazing. Um, it was a, it was an amazing weapon for him for sure. But I'm um, you know like you, again you're a freshman and you're in this hostile environment and you know and the crowd down there at Florida State was like nothing that you guys had really ever seen. And so here you are, game one starter and Florida State had just roughed you guys up the day before they scored eight runs in the first inning 
the day before, but then you, you know, you talked about a couple big strikeouts. You end up, I think they got a runner on, but you got a couple of strikeouts, including one to end that inning. That had to be big for you, you know, just to be able to to get out of that situation early, you know, do what you wanted to do and, and kind of get into the game that way. Yeah, for sure. I think that is definitely a, a confidence booster anytime you can get a big strikeout um, early in the game, get out of a jam, settle in, um, and and make sure you're just getting outs and getting your team back back in the dugout to – to see what we could scrap together as far as runs go. But I do remember that environment. I remember the, the chanting from uh, the Florida State fans. They they definitely brought it. And, and I think that game was even on a Monday, if I remember it was. correctly. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, just even for a Monday, they packed the stands. It was uh, it was it was wild. But uh, I, yeah, I, it, was, it was one of the special days, I think, of my life, probably one of the my best games and uh, something that I'll always remember, especially having my family there and, and doing it somewhat in my own backyard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, like you said, the fact that Florida state didn't even recruit you and, and, and there you are to have that kind of opportunity. That's, that's, that's pretty big. Yeah. So a few weeks back we had Brian Stavisky as well as Steve Solman and Steve Stanley on, and we talked about that ninth inning comeback at the college world series. Yeah. Of course, that was the game against Rice, and it was another game that you started, you know. So you 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 start that game, it's an elimination game. What was what was that experience like, you know, just being on the mound starting that game in Omaha, you know, even before any of that dramatics ever happened late in the game? Yeah, I mean, just the whole Omaha experience is is something that uh is definitely special. And I I remember um being interviewed it live by ESPN uh, prior to the start of, uh, of, of the world series, which was uh, incredible. And I remember a couple, I think it was O'Toole, you know, he was, he was making jokes and trying to throw me off as I was on, on live television. Of course he was <laughs> kind of expected by him, but, right. um, but yeah, just, you know, going, going from a, going into an environment like that with 30,000 fans or, you know, 25,000, 30,000 fans, and then playing against the number one team in, in the nation again, right? Right. Uh, the second week in an elimination game, uh, whew, that's, that's a lot for an 18 year old kid. <laughs> but at but the you time, held up to it. you held up to it pretty well. You know? Yeah. At the time, you're not thinking about those things, right? You, you, um, you're, you're thinking about going out there, throwing strikes, get ahead of getting ahead of batters and um, doing what you know how to do on the mound. Um, it's it's now that I actually get nervous thinking about going into that, to that situation. Right. Back then, if you have, all, you, you know, I, I like to think I had a lot of confidence just going into to the game. And uh, again, you know, my stuff was on the past the prior few weeks and I felt good. And, and Rice had some really good pitching um, mm -hmm. some, some guys that, you know, three guys in particular that I think were all first rounders and I ended up playing against them in, in Cape Cod leagues the, the uh, next two summers. But, uh, but yeah, what a, what a special game. And uh, that ninth inning comeback, I actually caught a little bit of your interview with, with those guys. Uh, oh, was, did you? Yeah, it was cool to see. Um, uh, you know, it made, it made me miss the team and miss the guys in the clubhouse and uh, sharing some of those memories with them. What was, what was that like for, you know, cause by the ninth inning you're out of the game what was that like for you watching that kind of inning unfold, you know, from Stanley's triple to ultimately Brian Stavisky's walk-off home run? Yeah, I still get chills thinking about it uh, because it was just a 
an amazing moment and comeback. I, what I also remember from that game was um, we were in the seventh inning with two outs and uh, being taken out at a point, <laughs> which I thought I still had a little bit left in the tank. Right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny the things that you, your mind chooses to remember. But, uh-huh. <laughs> but we, we, you know, coming out on top and getting a win. And uh, we, I, I remember hearing this, and it, it brought back that we never went to it out, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so that was cool. Just, just getting a win in the College World Series and, and moving on to, to live another day, and that's what you're you're trying to do there in, when you're in the losers bracket. Unfortunately, you're just playing play the next game, get a W, and, and live another day, and see where it takes you. I think you you, you must have watched that interview because I think Steve Stanley said that in that yeah, interview he, that. He that did. They, that you guys had never gone two and out, and I never yeah. thought about that until he said it. But that's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, and I think that shows a lot of uh, character and heart of the team, and gets kind of down to the foundation that when your back's against the wall, we were we were always able to perform and come out and and uh, and have a good game. You know. Yep, absolutely. So a couple years later, a couple years after that, and I was thinking about this this morning. So you're a teammate of Jeff Samarja in 2004. Yep. And, you know, we all know about the nickname Samarja ended up with <laughs> Shark, right? Yeah, yeah. So the story that's been told is that you're the man responsible for giving him that nickname. So is that is true or false? Is that a true story? That is a true story. Uh, <laughs> I think that it was it was not only me. Um, it, there was a few probably a few other members of the staff that quickly jumped on to the nickname and it seemed to fit. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I had caught wind of that a few years after I'd actually left and, you know, Jeff went on to have an awesome career. Uh, but yeah, there is definitely some truth to that. Do, do you remember like any of the origins of it? Like, I think that I had heard it had something to do with like you or somebody told him that he looked like, you know, like, like shark face, the cartoon or something like that. Does that, yeah, sound, the, the that? actually started as shark face, uh, just cu- coming clean. <laughs> Cause we, we did see some comparisons in, in his nose and, uh, his teeth. He kind of like looked a little bit like a shark, which, uh, which seemed fitting. And, you know, he, he, he liked it. I think at the time, <laughs> I don't know if he did afterwards, but, uh, but hey, if you're going to be named after some animal that's pretty fierce, a shark, not too bad. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, he seemed to, you know, he definitely, you know, like everyone would walk around calling him shark. And, you know, that I think that he, that pretty much lasted throughout his big league career. For yeah. That matter. yeah. So he must have liked it. Okay. Yeah. He, he embraced it and, uh, and rolled with it. So that's yeah. a sign of a good nickname, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. You should have like trademarked it and, you know, like merchandise or something like that cashed in on it somewhere yeah Yeah, maybe (laughs) (laughs) all right chris niesel from notre dame's 2002 college world series team a lot of great memories chris it's been great catching up with you i appreciate you doing this today sean thanks for having me all right absolutely all right so that was uh Chris Niesel, once again, a little bit of the uh, origin story of the uh, the shark nickname that uh, Jeff Samarja got. I think that he was, you know, uh, like a little bit, you know, not taking full credit because the credit 
you know, I, I think he kind of felt like it was almost a pejorative or something that he gave some hardship, but you know, so he kind of hid behind that a little bit, but great catching up with Chris. He was such a huge part of that team. And again, he works for a place called Databricks that uh, provides analytics to NFL, major league baseball, NBA teams. And that's uh, something that uh, I told him we're going to have to get into deeper at another time where he can uh, kind of tell us all about that. Cause there's just so much going on with sports and analytics right now. And he works with all of these different professional teams, you know, distributing that analytics. So uh, some really good stuff there. So uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up tonight, but uh, salty Virginia. Thank you uh, for, uh, excuse me, the compliment there. And uh, it's always great, you know, catching up with these guys, being able to, to have been a part of that, college world series team in 2002 doing the play-by-play for those guys and being able to relive a lot of these memories 20 years later now is uh, is pretty cool i've got to do it with a lot of these guys this year paul Maneri, uh, brian o'connor chris niesel now stavisky stanley solman jp gagne apollo to a lot of these different guys who are part of that so it's been great to catch up with them but uh we'll uh we'll uh we'll, we'll continue to try to track some of these guys down I've, it's been a couple of years since i talked with jeff samarja i had him on my old radio show a few years back i'm gonna we'll see if we can track him down and and get his side of uh of the old nickname uh nickname gate i guess but that's gonna do it for tonight once again be sure to hit that uh like button subscribe rate us comment on us all that different stuff follow us on the podcast platforms as well we will be back one more time tomorrow as we get another day closer to fall training camp for Notre Dame. We will talk to you then on IB Nation Sports Talk. Thanks for checking in with us today. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.